what it means is that, I mean, at the National Museum of African American History and Culture, people often think of African Americans as just those groups of people that are, came out of the slave trade from straight from Africa to the United States and then became part of the, you know, slavery here, the civil rights movement, the segregation movement, and everything that we're going through today. But mm -hmm. I, um, well, the museum is very, in, understands that uh, African American history and culture is internationally created. Welcome to Diversity Dish, where we're dishing on everything diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice related. My name is Sidrola Maruska, and we're bridging the gap between what needs to be said and what needs to be heard. Those individual experiences that are often ignored or simply dismissed. Sometimes I'm dining alone, sometimes I'm dining with friends, and sometimes I'm dining a la carte. No matter how I'm dining, it promises to be delicious. Let's dig in. Haitian-born Joanne Hippolyte, PhD, is the Supervisory Museum Curator of the African Diaspora at the National Museum of African American History and Culture, NMAAHC, and the board president of the Museums Association of the Caribbean. Her interests and expertise lie in African American and Afro-Caribbean material and expressive culture. She curated the Cultural Expressions inaugural exhibition and is co-curator of A Century in the Making, building the National Museum of African American History and Culture inaugural exhibit for the NMAAHC. She began her museum career in 2004 as the Folklife Curator at the Historical Museum of Southern California, where she researched and presented programs and exhibitions on Miami's multi-ethnic communities. Prior to joining the Smithsonian, she was the Chief Curator at History Miami Museum from 2008 to 2013, where she curated, among others, the exhibitions Black Crossroads, the African Diaspora in Miami, Haitian Community Arts, Necropolis Cristobal Colon, photographs by Raul Rodriguez, and Black Freedom in Florida. She holds a PhD in literature from the University of Miami, an MA in African American Studies from the University of California, Los Angeles, and a BA in English and Afro-American Studies from the University of Pennsylvania. Welcome back to Diversity Dish. I'm so glad you decided to come back. My guest today is Joanne Hippolyte. How are you, Joanne? Doing really, really well. Glad to be here. Yes, it is so good to see you. Joanne and I knew each other way back when there oh, were yeah. no husbands, there were no children. Now it's all, we all have all of those things. <laughs> so to get into our conversation, I just love to ask the question, what is it that you are most passionate about right now? So I think it ties into my work at the as a curator at the National Museum of African American History and Culture, uh, and right now I'm working on collecting jewelry from uh, a mid-century modernist designer named Art Smith. He was Jamaican American. He made these beautiful sculptural pieces, like just outstanding, stunning pieces that people often refer to as wearable art. It was the kind of jewelry that was collected by museums, so as well as worn by people on the streets. He had this studio from the 1940s to the late 1970s in Greenwich Village. He was the only known African-American person working in the studio modern jewelry movement. And I just fallen in love with his work, the aesthetic of his work. And I love that I get to, you know, tool around the country looking for examples of the work, purchasing it and helping to build a collection. Eventually, I'll do an online exhibition and uh, a couple of articles and potentially a book on him. Wow. I've never heard of him. But once you have heard of him, you'll never forget it. And if you Google Art Smith Jewelry, you'll see all that amazing work show up. Yeah. Art Smith Jewelry. So I'm going to have to link that in the show notes also so that everybody can, yeah. can do that. So you said that he was probably one of the only African-American jewelers in uh, Greenwich Village at that time. Yeah. He was, he, 
interestingly, he was trained by another African, uh, by an African-American woman named Winifred Mason Cheney. And she was doing, she had started making jewelry at home, hammering discs and her, her stuff really took off. And um, they worked together at the Children's Aid Society in Harlem. And she introduced him to making jewelry. He'd gone to art school and, and um, he's far, so she, she opened up a shop and hired him as her um, shop assistant, but he soon far surpassed her and was creating like better work than her and ended up <laughs> opening up his own shop and um, just really, you know, we, we created being a master of the form. Yeah. That is so incredible. And I love that. And so you said that you are now traveling around collecting some of his pieces. Is that to put into the museum? As well. Trying to build a representative collection of his work. He did many, many different types of pieces. And if we're going to do an exhibit in the future, you want to be able to show range. Um, right. you know, the earliest things he might have done, some of the later periods, some of his more outstanding pieces. Uh, he was sold all over the country in boutiques, but also in places like Bloomingdale's. So uh, that's why there's so much of his work available because a lot of people bought it was all over. And um, you can, even today, you might be able to go to a flea market or a vintage store and um, accidentally stumble on something that what, you know, that some elderly person probably bought a long time ago and it ended up at that store and, and look, look on the back of it, look for his signature on the back. And now his stuff goes for over, like his necklaces go for over $20,000 a piece and his bracelets and earrings are in the four or five digits as well yeah wow at the time he was selling them for about 4.95 you know 8.95 cents. <laughs> <laughs> yeah oh wow well but he was making a living or a good living hopefully on the work that he was doing and so he didn't die as some artists do and even some writers a pauper because he wasn't making any money right that's a good point for you to bring up because so many of our um, black people who just you know commit themselves to the art right sometimes yeah. and probably like Zora Neale Hurston the writer for instance um well he was smart right instead of just committing himself to being an artist and that is what he was and considered himself and there were many other mid-century jewelry artists he had a shop like a little jewelry store, a brick and mortar store. So people were ordering from him. They, they would come in and have him fix things. They would come in and buy his work, commission work. And that sort of like stable presence of a, having a jewelry store that people are frequenting, mm -hmm. I think made a big difference as opposed to being at home and having a studio, right? And only right. creating work that is for collectors or for um, museums, right? That's, a, that's right. a much more of a gambit, I think. Right. So at the time that he was selling his jewelry, was he also selling to collectors and to museums or no? Because I guess there's a kind of an incubation period maybe or something. Museums were acquiring and exhibiting his work really early on because they oh. were starting to recognize that these jewelers were borrowing on modern art principles. Modern art was being shown in a lot of the museums. They started recognizing, hey, look what's going on in this other field. And they started creating exhibits and including his work in it. So that's where the recognition comes from. I think the other really interesting thing about Art Smith, he, he dovetailed with my work at the museum because I'm the supervisory curator of the African diaspora. I focus in particular on black immigrant American communities. And he was a black immigrant American. His father and mother had moved from Jamaica to Cuba to work on a sugar plantation, right? All mm. these stories that happened a lot in the Caribbean. We had yeah. Haitian people also going to, the, to Cuba to work as well. And then they moved to Harlem. They were following Garvey, actually. Marcus Garvey, who had started, yeah. started a whole UNIA chapter here. So his father was a lieutenant in the Garvey movement. That's how they end up here. Um, and it, what's interesting about Art Smith is that he was, he never became a naturalized citizen. So he was undocumented. We talk, we use that word a lot today, right? Undocumented and what that yeah. means. Yeah. His mother and his sister became naturalized citizens, but he didn't. And I think it had a lot to do with the fact that he was born in Cuba. So he didn't have the same birth certificate credentials oh. that his sister and his mother had access to, they were born in Jamaica and Jamaica at that time was under British colonial rule. Mm -hmm. So you could go back and get the records a lot easier than what Cuba had a revolution. I just, I, that's my speculation, but there, mm -hmm. there would be no other reason for him if his mother and his sister had went for it and did it for him not to do it himself unless there was a, some complication, right? Right. And, yeah, and then the, the complications of being undocumented, you know, meant that he couldn't travel out of the country right in case mm -hmm. something happened to him so you never see him 
though he travels around the United States, you never see him going outside of the country at all. And what a lot of artists do, right? They go to Paris, mm. they go to Germany, they go to other places to study or just to um, show their work. Mm. Um, so I'm, I'm interested in those facets as well, like how, how he lives his life as a Black immigrant American. Yeah, undocumented. undocumented. <laughs> yeah. Wow, that's so interesting. I mean, I can't imagine how the more that you dig into it, the more that you learn how interesting that could be, because just listening to you talk about it, I'm like, oh my goodness, you know, we don't often think about what happened then, especially as you said, you know, we use that word a lot now, but there were people who spent their whole lives here in this country who, yeah. who prospered and who contributed and who yeah. were quote unquote undocumented, right? And the rules got stricter and stricter over time. Right. Yeah. And, and, and the, the terms have changed now. It's, it's even harder now, I think, to live undocumented than it was 40, 50 years ago. Remember, even Social Security numbers didn't get applied until like the mid 1900s. Now we're much more it's much more of a controlled sort of state, I think. Um, and right. black people have it harder than anybody, right, in terms of getting their, mm -hmm. their citizenship rights, getting becoming a citizen and getting access to this country and mm -hmm. also getting their rights respected as well. Mm hmm. Absolutely. Uh, I remember, you know, and when I had my kids, I had to have their names and I had to apply for their social security cards right away. But I didn't get a social security card until I was trying to work when I was 16 years old. Mm -hmm. uh, so and I was born in this country. Right. Yeah. And so I think it you when you say that the rules have changed, I have seen <laughs> I've seen that evolution where it's like, oh, no, right now you need to do it. Whereas for me, it was like, you, you do it when you need to get a job, then you get your social security card and, and yeah, you can, and you can exactly work. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Do you remember that? Yeah. <laughs> that's a good point. I, I wonder if that's when I got mine as well, because we're not too far in age, but I remember yeah. that it was that at least was when I was presented with it by my mother. Like now you have to have this, your card yeah. carrying, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Work in this country. Right. Because you right, can't like, work without a social security card. And here he was, he had a business, right? And no social security number, right? So yeah, Yes, yeah. right? So that's so interesting to me because that, that was the precipice. That was the thing that, that made it so that we had to go get our, our social security card. So I remember my mom taking us to the social security administration, my brother and I, mm -hmm. and getting the social security card. She figured she'd do them at the same time. I'm two years older than my brother. So he got his when he's a little younger than me, um, before he could work. But she was like, if I'm gonna do this, we're just gonna do, we're just gonna do this, everybody right. <laughs> together. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's so interesting. The rules, like you said, tighter and tighter and tighter. And now it's like, I couldn't leave the hospital until I filled out the paperwork yep. for the birth certificate and for the social security card. And so yeah. all those things came in the mail, you know, at the, around the same time. So my kids have their number, you know, They've, yeah, they've if you had lose it. it, you can try to get another. You can. There are ways for you to try to get another one. There's a whole process in place, right? It's harder yeah. for immigrant Americans because they have to, if they're born in another country. I was also born in another country, and to get my birth certificate, I've got to go to Haiti and do some stuff. <laughs> so, <laughs> to figure out how to get a copy of it. And I, yeah, mm -hmm. it's it takes some work. You know, it's a it's a process. Yeah, yeah, and so yes, you. So you're Haitian American. You you were born in Haiti. Mm -hmm. Okay, I was born here. So you get to work with works from what you said, the, uh, the immigrant uh, mm -hmm. African American yeah. uh, population. Hey, thanks for listening. My name is Sidrola Maruska, and I help entrepreneurs and small businesses go from mediocre to magnificent by transforming their cultures to be more equitable and inclusive. To find out how we can work together, go to diversitydish.com, where you'll find my consulting, coaching, and speaker information. Diversitydish.com. I look forward to working with you. Yeah, I have um, a really cool job. I, it's the, I'm, I'm the supervisor curator of the African diaspora. And what's the African diaspora, right? It's every Black country in this world. That's right. <laughs> moving out of Africa. So it's way too big a term, right? <laughs> it's for anything. Yes. 
But what it means is that, I mean, at the National Museum of African-American History and Culture, people often think of African-Americans as just those groups of people that are, came out of the slave trade from straight from Africa to the United States and then became part of the, you know, slavery here, the civil rights movement, the segregation movement, and everything that we're going through today. But mm -hmm. I, um, well, the museum is very in understands that uh, African-American history and culture is internationally created, mm -hmm. that there were always these uh, six waves of Im immigrants, Black immigrants coming into the country, whether it was because of the Haitian Revolution or um, uh, slaves being seasoned in the Caribbean and then becoming part of the United States or successive waves of migration. It was a large migration from the English Caribbean in the early 19th century and certainly the Haitian migration and then the big one in the 1970s. Mm -hmm. And these people become part of Black America and um, they often contri contribute to a lot of the what are considered Black American Black movements and Black freedom movements, Black studies as well. Um, mm -hmm. So really, African American roots are very, very diverse. You know, whatever you call yourself, and you can call yourself whatever you want. There's nothing wrong with that. Mm -hmm. um, I can call myself Haitian American, or I, I could choose to call myself African American, depending on how I define it. That's up mm -hmm. to you, like what you want to call yourself. And we recognize that as well. But we're interested in making sure that people understand the diversity of African-Americanness. And so mm -hmm. it's, my, it's, it's my job and several other peoples at the museums to point out that we don't didn't all come from the same place, right? Some of us had some right. stops in different places before right. we got here. And that informs our identity, a different for our identity as well and our culture as well. Yeah. And that's so important because, you know, we spend a lot of time. And when I say we, I mean, Black people, Black Americans, African-Americans, we spend a lot of time defending the fact and the idea that we are not a monolith, <laughs> uh -huh. right? We have an experience that many of us can relate to and can, but we each live our own experiences. And, right. and they're often informed by the people who came before us, where we came from, what, what was that history? And so, you know, in order to be truly equitable and truly inclusive, you have to understand that just because someone presents as a black person, don't think that you know everything about them because right. they have a varied history, just like everybody else, yep. right? Yeah, they have different geographical roots and people are very different around the country, right? They don't, we don't all talk the same in different parts of the country. We don't eat the same foods in different parts. Just this country alone, mm -hmm. we may be at class issues, make, make, bring some differences between us, where our parents came from. We are very diverse. Yeah. Um, yeah. Absolutely. And so it's very important at this museum that that is, that is brought out and not, you know, condense everything to one thing. Yeah. So you are researching art, you are researching this and you, and you're expecting that a book will come out at some point. Is that a book that you're going to be writing on the information that you're gathering on him? Yeah, I hope to do an online exhibition and then at least a catalog. So it'll be a, uh, the book will be a catalog that will showcase some of his work and talk mm -hmm. about his life mm -hmm. and his culture. Nice. I love that. So what other projects have you worked on? How long have you been there at the um, African American Museum? Since 2014. So okay. I, I came to the museum field right after graduate school mm -hmm. in um, 2004. I just graduated with the PhD and I took a position as the Folklife Curator at History Miami Museum, mm -hmm. which is right in downtown Miami. Mm -hmm. um, and that was great because I was doing a lot of community research. I was focused on the different ethnic communities in Miami. Talk about diversity, right? Diaspora. Mm. Uh, differences there and figuring out their tradition folk life is very much about traditions and traditional culture so looking around what was going on in those communities and collecting artifacts related to it and creating exhibitions so i remember mm -hmm. i created a great ex i created a, an exhibition that i loved working on called haitian community arts mm -hmm. and we actually spent time just talking to community members about like okay you got to get that community you know that uh communion dress made who is the person you go to to get it so who's the one who's mm -hmm. really well known you know who do you go who are the bakers in town that you think make the best pate and make the mm -hmm. best you know, the, the cakes for every occasion the sign the artists the musicians that you hire and so it was a it was a community led in the exhibition we were listening to the 
voices of the community about who mm -hmm. their artisans are um, and created that. And then I did another exhibition called Black Crossroads, the African Diaspora in Miami, where we focused on all the different Black communities in Miami, Jamaican, Trinidadian, Bahamian, African-American, mainly mm -hmm. those are the five largest ones. And we also did Afro-Cubans as well. Mm -hmm. And we talked about where they had come from and what their where they landed in Miami, what their community structures were, their churches, their, their neighborhoods, um, their aspirations. Um, so it was great. It was a great, that was a, a good exhibition as well. And it was great for learning all of those communities and putting them all together in one place. And then in 2014, I had started looking around for more work. I, I, I think I was done with what I was doing at History Miami. And mm -hmm. I was just looking for other opportunities. And everyone, I think everyone who's a curator knew that this museum was being built, the National Museum of Africa. <laughs> and everyone was trying to get a job. And I, every once in a while, I would look on the, the employment website for the Smithsonian and be like, oh, they're looking for a religion curator. That's not me. Oh, they're looking for a, you know, like a slavery curator. That's not what I do. And then it's just so funny. I had gone to the Smithsonian on a family visit and had they had a, a this museum had a short-term gallery in the National Museum of American History, and I went to see it, and they had a great show called The Changing America that was fantastic. And I left saying, "See, I really want to work for this museum." And then I went online that night, and there was the position for African diaspora sure. And I said, "That's me. That's me. <laughs> That's me." So then I, because everything I'd been doing at History Miami was about working with you know multi-ethnic communities and multi-ethnic Black communities, yeah. and so I applied and I came on board in 2014, April 2014 two years before we opened yeah nice wow and so so since you've been there what are some of the um exhibits that you've worked on so this one so and also when did this one start like when did you start working on this one but what have you worked on before so the Artsmith project is really just a research project right now okay. and it's collecting a collecting initiative and a research project it'll be an exhibition further on down the load down the road you have mm -hmm. to have something to show when you have an exhibition, which is yeah. why I'm building the collection right now, like a representative <laughs> collection. Um, I curated the um, permanent permanent in exhibition. Permanent means it's going to be up for a long time, 10 years or more. Exhibition called Cultural Expressions, which is located on the fourth floor of the museum, which is okay. where all our cultural galleries are. And Cultural Expressions looks at five ways in which African-Americans express culture. So it looks the five ways are food ways, culture and cuisine language, power of the word, artistry, craftsmanship and creativity, social dance and gesture, and style, image and identity. And if you think about it, what I was, I was giving people a very broad introduction to culture in general, what culture mm -hmm. is. And I always thought of it like a guidebook um, city. Like if you were going to a different country, Jamaica or Germany or anywhere, you would hear the language, what you would hear would be different, right? So language, mm -hmm. power of the word, the way people sound and the things they say. So I looked at that, like what, how, do, how does, what, how does sound and language work in African-American communities? It's, and then we talked about that monolith thing, right? It's not all the same. Like if you go in the Gullah Geechee communities, you're hearing a whole different sound, right? Yes. You were in 1940s in Harlem and you were hearing Harlem slang, that would have been a different sound. There's the whole African-American English vernacular. There's the way yeah. preachers talk when they're at church. So we explore like sound and language mm -hmm. or orality and language power of the word. And the same thing in all of the other areas as well. Looked at food geographically, the diversity and the range. With style, we talk about skin color and mm -hmm. um, skin color and politics of skin color, but also beauty. The fact that beauty practices um, of African-Americans have and the fashion industry, artistry and craftsmanship. So start, uh, going back to this idea of a guidebook, right? When you go mm -hmm. to a different country, you're likely to see the people dress differently, right? So mm -hmm. what are the stylistics of that community? If you, you may go to a craft market or the museum and see the products that, you know, and the artistry that's them. So that's the artistry section. And then social dance and gesture, you know, we all have our own different dance styles in different right. countries, right? And what we do here. And then the food obviously is one of the easiest one to people know when you travel food ways culture and cuisine oh, i feel like i missed one oh, it doesn't music, matter but music? yeah maybe it was uh we did dance and social social gesture well it doesn't matter but that's the whole that's how cultural expressions works that's what you experience yeah. when you come into that gallery on that floor it's a lot of fun it was a lot of fun to curate but it's also just a great gallery uh, in general um visually it's got a lot of yeah. color in it and a lot of great artifacts yeah, I, I'm really looking forward to being able to go to see all the exhibits there. 
because uh, I've been trying to get there for a few years. <laughs> Every time I go on, the tickets are sold out. Uh, yeah, yeah, we're the only Smithsonian it, Museum that requires a ticket to get into. Yes. <laughs> problem to have. <laughs> yes, yes, it is. And I know because when we went in April, we didn't have to have tickets for the other ones. We just mm -hmm. showed up. Or yeah. um, maybe you had to do a time slot for some of them, but you know, you showed up and it was fine. That was the only one where you had to have a ticket, which is good. I think, you know, like you said, I think it, it says a lot. It says that it's in great demand. People really are interested and they want to see these exhibits. They want to experience this. They want to know more. And so you kind of have to regulate how many people are in there. Otherwise there'd be no, there'd be no movement. <laughs> We actually broke the, the rules for like how long people stay in a museum. There are actually um, people who study how people, what people do in museums, the visitor evaluation studies is what they're called. So you can do, so curators and other people can do a better job of planning for people mm -hmm. in the spaces. And so they watch what people do, how long they stay and all those things. And so maybe if you're, if you're lucky, someone will stay in a museum anywhere for two hours. People were staying in our museum six hours or more. Yeah, it's so we were they were and they were being tracked, so we could tell that, right? And so because of that, it also meant that we had to, we could give less tickets because the capacity was full, right? And you can only give yeah. so much and turn it over. Um, so and and we also have a higher number of people who um, it's their first visit to a museum ever that come into our museum. Really? Mm -hmm. Wow. And why do you think that is? I think that the story, like people really want to understand race in this country and African-American history and culture, and everybody feels connected to it in one way or another, right? Yeah, the, yeah. the history of this country or someone they may know, right? Or mm -hmm. something they've seen on television that they don't understand. And they're yeah. hoping when they come here to sort of get, you know, enlightened or to connect with something or, yeah. And uh, it's just, it's been an amazing journey for the museum and obviously, Oh, much needed, right? It took over a hundred years to build this museum, <laughs> but <laughs> proven that it was really needed. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. So going back a little bit. So when you say that you're curating, you know, these, this information, where do you start? Like, where do you start to start curating about, you know, about the food and about the language and about the, the music and about the dance? Where do you start? So that's a great question. Curators are a subject area specialist in any area that they've studied. Most of the time they have a master's or a PhD in the area that mm -hmm. they studied in. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so they've already got like the studies in a particular area. So if I was a food curator, I'd have food studies and I would have studied African-American food in particular and looked at the history of African-American food over time, right? Mm -hmm. From the beginning of this country to the present day. And then I might choose to specialize on a particular period or a particular cuisine, geographic mm -hmm. cuisine, right? Mm -hmm. And grow that specialization. So we, we already, each of us, and there are curators in everything. There are curators in botany at the Smithsonian. There are curators in like pests. There are curators <laughs> of dinosaurs, curators of aviation so any topic at all you can be a curator yeah. of so we start with that right what we know already about mm -hmm. a particular subject uh, and topic and then we also do uh, we try to make sure we bring visitor input in we, we try to understand what the audience knows about something too because you need to meet them where they're at like you can't go mm -hmm. so high that you they don't understand something and you can't go mm -hmm. too low that it's too basic for them as well so you try to find that sweet spot in the middle Mm -hmm. So um, curators, when they create their exhibitions, they try to think about educational messages. What is it that I, I want people to know after they've walked out of this space? And then they try to layer the, the content that they have around those educational messages. So back to your question about where do you start, right? You, there's always too much more than you can show, right? There's not much <laughs> more than you, but you have at least a storyline based on the beginning of the beginning of African-American culture to the contemporary day about food, you know, there's a storyline that exists from your studies, right? Yeah. And then you've got to figure out what you've got to show because uh, an, ex an exhibition is very different from a book or an article where you can just write all the stuff and give them all the content. You actually have to have an artifact to actually mm -hmm. tell the story, to shape the story around. So mm -hmm. a lot of what we did uh, at the beginning of cultural expressions was looked for artifacts that fit into the, the time periods and the cuisines, for instance, and foodways, culture and cuisine that we wanted to represent. So we looked at Creole cuisine in that section mm -hmm. and we had to think about, well, who were the chefs during that period of time? Who were the more significant ones and what material culture exists around them? 
Are there any of their pots, their restaurant menus, store signs available to help mm-hmm. tell the story of them, you know, create, helping to create Creole cuisine and making it mm-hmm. the popular American cuisine that it is today? Mm-hmm. Wow. So then, so then when you start looking for these artifacts to show, to, to kind of tell the story, where do you go? How do you find, how do you find them? That's <laughs> yeah, a great question. Sometimes people find us. We have a process mm. online where people can offer something to donate to us and okay. it gets sent to whatever curator whose area it is and we evaluate it. And some really good things have been, great things have been donated to us because people saved their like great, great grandmother's, you know, freedom papers, right? Or mm. their, uh, you know, the wedding dress that their mother had commissioned from African-American designer, Ann Lowe, who's a major designer. So people who save um, items, as soon as we're trained to be able to look at something and say, this is significance. <laughs> yes, we want this. So that that's great that people feel like this is an important thing. I know it's important because my mother told me it was important. My great grandmother was important. <laughs> it's important to black history. So I'm gonna offer it to the museum so it has a safe place to live forevermore because the museum lived beyond you, right? It lives yeah. beyond me, it goes a hundred years later. And then there's lots of things available at auction, believe it or not, African-American memorabilia, old letters, photographs, um, papers that belong to famous writers and actors. And think about all the famous people in the world today and how everyone wants to own a piece of them, right? So they might want to, yeah, like the costume worn by the Jackson 5 on a particular show. You could buy that at a music auction, actually. Right. So we do, we do acquisitions that way. And there are also lots of private collectors. So there are people who have a specialization and it may be in art or they may want to collect like war memorabilia and they've mm-hmm. built really strong collections and we can often go to them once we know who they are and ask to purchase something from their collection or ask them to donate something from their collection. It's a, one of the things is like, if you don't have an artifact, you don't have a story. And that can be really hard because you might have a story you really want to tell, but there's yeah. nothing to show. And I can write about it, but I can't put it on exhibit. That's not, that's not good enough. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Now, so when you say that you were writing about it, so you said that uh, you were wanting to create this book. Mm-hmm. Is this also part of your job? Your, your, yeah. you know, are you expected to write about yeah. the exhibits that you're put that you're curating? Yeah, curators are definitely scholars and are supposed to contribute to um, the dissemination of knowledge. So what we know, we're supposed to write scholarly articles and put, publish them in journals and about the about what we know. Um, the Smithsonian publishes many books, so we may be asked to write an article about one thing or another, a topic that's being put into a book, and we do that for them as well. So if you think about it, curators are often the complement to what university professors are doing, except we do it for museums. Yeah. yeah. That's what I was going to say. Yeah. (laughs) That's what I was going to say, because my husband is a a professor and he, Um, you know, he has to continue to, 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 to do things, you know, write articles or, or he's a, he's a writer. So he's written a book. um, He's written screenplays and things like that. And so when you said that, I'm like, well, it's just like being a professor, except that you don't necessarily do it in front of a class. You do it for, for the museum. For the general Um, public too. And for the, right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So do you ever present yourself to the public, like present on any of the things that you're that you've been working on? Sure. I mean, in many different ways, we I do VIP tours for the museum. Um, I often get called to talk on um, uh, scholarly uh, conferences and panels or museum conferences, of which there are many, many <laughs> on panels. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I just got an invitation, for instance, to to speak at, the, there's a French immigration museum in Paris and they want to oh. look at how museums around the world are dealing with immigration. And so because I focus on black immigrant Americans, I would come to that conference this October. I think it's when it's supposed to be held and talk about what our museum is doing. I want to be a curator now. <laughs> <laughs> it's a fun job. It's a fun job. <laughs> it sounds like a fun job. I mean, it sounds like a fun job. It sounds like a lot of work because, of course, you have to do a lot of the legwork and all of the research and all of that. But if, that, if those are things that you really like doing, it sounds like a really fun job to me. It is. It is. It's a lot of work. You're right, because um, it can be there's a lot of research in, involved in acquiring an object. 
Um, mm -hmm. Someone could come to you and tell you a, a really good example is that I brought in um, Zura Neale Hurston's graduation robe a few years ago. Mm. Um, and that's because I also have a specialization in literature. So black immigrant Americans, but also literature. Mm. And um, so, so we had to prove that it was her robe. Like that's a lot of research trying to figure that out, you know? Yeah. It was a story behind this robe that she had bought it and she was supposed to wear it to her graduation at Barnard. And she didn't ever, she, she ended up having to go to the South and do research. So she sold the robe to a classmate and it was the classmate had then held on to it, wore it to her graduation and then held on to it forever. Mm -hmm. And then on her deathbed, she gifted it to someone else whose name was Zora as well. So this person comes to us with this story and she says, I have Zora now. And we're like, how do we know this is true? <laughs> right? <laughs> like, this is such a story. Like, how do we find that? But can you imagine the amount of research, reading all of Zora's materials and letters, trying to prove that she did give this, um, this yeah. role to this person? And trying to legitimize that this person is a smart, you know, um, truthful person as well and knows what she's saying and is not trying to fool us into paying for something. We didn't have to pay it. It was a donation, by the way. We right. then had, we also had to have textile conservators look at it and backdate the robe to make sure it was from that time period. There's right. lots of fancy things they do. They look at thread. They look at cloth. They look at styles of gowns during that period of time. Mm -hmm. So this was an interesting conundrum because we never saw anywhere. Zora, Zora writes that she didn't attend her graduation. That's documented. Mm -hmm. But she never talks about what she did to her robe. Right. Right. But what we what we what I could find out was that Zora Neale Hurston had a habit of selling everything when she was broke and she needed to go somewhere. She would sell her own typewriter, you know, so right. it's, it was conceivable that she could have sold her robe. The robe itself had been um, had been altered. So it was for a taller person, which Zora Neale Hurston was and then had been altered to for a smaller person. So that helped as well. The right. person who um, gave it to us tend to, ended up to be, you know, a really smart very interesting person who works on with Indian affairs and traditional culture. She had no reason to make up this story. She wasn't like a Zora, like fan, Sarah fan. Yeah. So she, <laughs> all of the things. So what we what found was that we couldn't prove that it wasn't true, which is what we were looking for as much as that it was true, like holes right. in the story. And that was good enough because oftentimes with black people, there isn't enough documentation, right? Their yes. stuff doesn't get saved in the archives as much as mm -hmm. the white, white colonial, um, mm -hmm. stories and uh, artifacts and and so oral history is very important in our communities um, just mm -hmm. as much as anything you can find on paper we could not prove that could not put a, put a single hole in the story and that was good enough that was us enough for us to say this and oh also it also had z and h like there was a label in the in the in the oh. gown that had Z and H on it. So the, her, her initials had been sewn in and the textile conservator proved that those initials were from way back when. So we also had that as a piece of right. evidence, yeah. But that took a lot of work. It took almost a, like a year to read through everything, get all those things processed, talk to people. And that's just one item. Like one. <laughs> you bring in thousands, thousands of objects a year. <laughs> so, <laughs> That's what I was just thinking. I was yeah. like, oh my gosh. And that was just like one thing. So that was just like... one. Yeah. So we call that provenance in the museum world. What's the provenance? What's the story of the object? We have to yes. do sometimes a lot of provenance history. We're so thrilled when someone comes to us and they have all of the information and all of the proof, you know? It's like, <laughs> yes, it was this time and it was this date and this person gave it. And I, here's my here's my receipts for it. And that the yes. time people buy things and throw away receipts. So. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah, we should learn. Keep our receipts. So as you're doing your research now uh with art, mm -hmm. you have to go through the same process, I'm sure, to to verify that the pieces that you're receiving are actual um yeah. are actually his pieces. Mm -hmm. And so did he sell them with paperwork or or anything? Or you know, how how do you know for sure? And that's a good question because there are people out there making fake art smith jewelry because they know mm. it sells very well so and they know mm. people buy it because it's a collectible right now right um, he had a um he had a stamp that he used to mark most of his jewelry that yeah. helps you have to make sure that the jewelry is stamped but even that could be made up so mm -hmm. we often go to uh, reputable dealers people we know who are specialists in selling they can look at it and tell you whether it's real or not right um, yeah that's what we try try for. And then also 
you can also also go to conservators of well particularly conservators who look at metal because that's what he, he worked in copper and brass silver mm -hmm. and gold and can help tell you the age of an item so if someone just made it a couple of years ago because they're trying to sell you a fake you can kind of right guess. yeah mm -hmm. and trying to make it trying to make it look old <laughs> right trying to make it look old exactly sure that's like the like nightmare that i would bring something into the museum and then later you know spend twenty thousand dollars and later realize it's like oh, it's a fake <laughs> yeah oh probably happens gosh. all the time though it does because people are always trying to scam yeah i would imagine that it does and 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 that's why you have to go through the whole process as much as possible in order to you know make sure because yeah. of course that's also that that goes to credibility right it goes to the credibility mm -hmm. of the institution or to the curator as well right right exactly yeah. no it's a it's a big it's a big problem actually yeah, yeah. art world fakes as they're called mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Wow, I, I, I love what you do. I'm like, I'm gonna, so my niece is thinking about be being a curator, becoming a right. curator. So Rudy's daughter, youngest daughter, yeah. who's, she just finished up her first year of college, she's going to her second year next year, but she's, she's actually right now interning at the Basquiat exhibit that's going yeah. on in Chelsea. So I so want to um, see that. I wonder how long that'll be up for. Yeah. Oh, it's awesome. And I think that it's supposed to be through the summer. So at least through through August. But it's 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 really is awesome. So I think you should see it. I think you would love it. But yeah, I you know, I, I think about that and I'm like, I think that that I see her doing it because I think that she's you know, she's definitely into doing, you know, figuring things out, doing the research, very meticulous, very smart. So mm -hmm. I, I'm, I'm not very excited for her. <laughs> you know, does she know what area she wants to study yet? I think she, Art, she, just, de she just decided that mm -hmm. she wanted to, to do this because she went oh, okay. in not knowing what she wanted to do. Right. So I think she's still probably trying to figure out which areas she wants to go into. But you know what? I'll connect the two of you and you can have a good chit chat and see, sure. you know, you know, because I think that she would gain a lot from you as well. Yeah, most that. people when they think curator, they think art. Curators only do art, but there's so many different. Yeah, so many types of curators. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, I think she's focusing on art right now. And so, yeah. And that's important because there aren't enough black curators. There have been scandals, you know, over the past few years about the fact that that there's so little right and that, uh, that institutions predominantly white institutions haven't been hiring um people mm. of color to do the work and yet they represent the work they buy the work they interpret the work um so they're right it's particularly it's been particularly big in the african museum field art field uh, because yeah. all these white people curating african art right who and there's right. also all these issues with whether the art you know um, is legit or not, was legitimately acquired or not, and having making sure you have those perspectives, uh, those important nuances, cultural nuances represented. And so mm -hmm. there's a real uh, change in the field going on right now. They're looking very closely at bringing that representation up. There are lots of fellowships now and other types of opportunities for people of color to learn curating or practice curating. Um, so it's a good time yeah. to do it. That's good to know. That's good information to know. Would you happen to know where someone can go to get more information about that? Or if, the, if there's like a place that they can find out, how, how would you find out? Yeah, there's an American, I think if she's interested in visual art, there's an American Art Association and they will post um, opportunities there. Um, in New American. York, there's the Caribbean Cultural Institute has one that's specific for Caribbean art curators. Okay. Um, but there are um, organizations like the American Association of Museums, the Museum Associations of the Caribbean that 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 show share when people are looking for or um, soliciting or putting yeah. out an application for for those kind of opportunities. Okay, great. Thank you so much for that information. I think that'll be helpful. Is there anything that you would like to bring forth that we haven't really talked about, but that you feel would be really important information for people to have? 
Uh, something else that I'm really involved in right now um, is the Museum Associations of the Caribbean. Mm -hmm. um, there are lots of museum associations and what these associations are, are places where professionals can come and network, right? Um, they can come and learn from each other, learn about different resources in the field. So there's an American Association of Museums, there's a Mid-Atlantic Association of Museums, Canadian Association, UK Association of Museums. Um, <laughs> but there's one also called the Museum Associations of the Caribbean, which I got involved with in 2016. Mm -hmm. And they're pan-regional and they also look at the Caribbean diaspora as well. So that's where mm -hmm. I, I fill in. And mm -hmm. what they're trying to do is sort of look at the museum needs within the Caribbean region, or if you have, or if you have a museum that has a Caribbean be an interest in its diaspora region. Um, the Caribbean has its own very particular story history, you know, in the world mm -hmm. of being mm -hmm. in many diverse cultures as well. They have to tell stories that are unique to their geography, to their, um, there are many different identities there. And, and yet it's one of the few places where, it's one of the places where you, there aren't a lot of museum studies programs or schools. People often have to leave their islands to go study if they're going to study museum work and museum oh. studies, and then may, they may not come back, right? Um, mm -hmm. So, what happens if you're a museum worker in those countries at, you know, uh, a heritage fort that you're working at, or at the art gallery there? How do you learn about your field and learn how to do it better, and have colleagues that you can network with, right? So that your mm -hmm. you can mentor you. So that's what the museums associations of the Caribbean does. It create, creates that space. And a lot of it, one of our signature events is a conference that we run almost every year. It's always on a Caribbean country, typically, and people come together. They talk about the work that they're doing in their different spaces. Um, they talk about projects that, that other people can learn from. They get to know each other. And then we spend a lot of time in the country's museums, like getting to know the museums in the region and all the cultural mm -hmm. heritage sites. So the tours are always a big part of the conference. Mm -hmm. um, that's a lot of fun. But it's mm. also just been a, a really a, a space of affirmation for museum workers in the Caribbean, and which often have, which are often smaller than spaces that you see in the United States, and mm -hmm. um, sometimes more under resourced as well. Um, mm -hmm. So it's important to build up that sector there because they have important stories to tell about their countries, their history, their um, their contributions, right, yeah, to yeah. all kinds of cultural, yeah, cultural forms as well. Yeah. Wow. That sounds really amazing. Like a really great um, program because we often, we, there's so many things we don't think about that, that basically things that we just take for granted here in this country, we take for granted that, you know, there's museum systems and people have museums and, and people can work in museums and, mm -hmm. and they, and, and all of that. We don't take into account when you're talking about a smaller country, what, that the resources might be less and that there might not be at the access necessary to 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 flourish and so i think that that sounds like a, an amazing endeavor or an amazing thing to to have everybody knows that they can get into art and have some kind of pathway that will allow them to learn as much as possible about their their country whatever it is that they're wanting to curate yeah and that they're sustaining and showcasing cultural heritage in their area yes. right which yeah. that's what museums often do. They safeguard cultural heritage, you know, in the mm -hmm. end. And mm -hmm. so if there aren't people doing that good work, then a lot of that great material culture, but also that great history in terms of its objects, right? It's art and it's artifacts can get lost. And that's really a, a loss for our country. Yeah, it's just a, a sad thing when you see its cultural heritage is not available to them anymore for them to look, yes. back, look back at and see and understand where they've come from, right? And where they're where they're going as well. And, uh, or what even people thought in, in terms of art. What I love about art in particular is the, that people are, you know, processing what's going on in the world today sometimes with art and showing mm -hmm. you their interpretations of it. And if you don't have those stories, in, you know, to tell um, because the work is gone, right? Or the work mm -hmm. is not being well cared for or maintained or, or you know properly cared uh, properly because there's lots of ways you have to take care of artifacts so they last forever properly conserved mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. uh, then when you have cultural heritage at risk right yeah it's like endangered species yes yes exactly <laughs> you know we, we don't want to lose them and we don't want to lose that information it's they, so important they tell us a lot about ourselves it really does yeah yeah mm -hmm. it really does yeah 
so we love at museums we love the pack rats who don't throw anything away even though they're hard <laughs> to live with if that, that's your spouse or your mother right <laughs> goodness gracious the people who like keep things like you know like like army uniforms that they should have thrown away like years ago because they had 20 of them but they were an african-american one one, were a veteran in world war ii like what if all of them threw their uniforms away right so right exactly it's like no we have to we have to keep it so that we can see and and you were part of history yeah such such a huge part of history such a huge Uh part of history Oh, I love it. I love it. See, this is why I do what I do. I get all these uh, new perspectives, new information, new ideas. And, mm-hmm. and this has been no different. Thank you so much for sharing your time with me today and for sharing. I mean, it's just so interesting, such interesting. Mm-hmm. I cannot wait to see the Art Smith work that you do coming down the line. And yeah. like you said, now that I know the name, I'm definitely going to have to go look up then see what's out there and um, see if I've ever seen it before and not known that I've seen it before. Yeah. Yeah. So before I let you go, I would like to know what is your favorite dish? So I'll tell you that I'm currently obsessed with croissants. I love it. And it's funny, I'm going to France next week and I'm like, oh my God, I have to get croissants every day. Yay. But not all croissants are created equal, right? There's some really bad croissants out there. And yes. I don't want to name some stores, but some stores you should not get. Croissants <laughs> out of the big box stores in particular. Okay? <laughs> There's an art to making a croissant with the multi-layers of the pastry. Yes. Um, yes 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 and it should be eaten in one day ideally so um it's got to have the right kind of crunch and bite to it right so i'm obsessed with like really good croissants and i'm almost glad when i taste bad ones i'm like no okay never (laughs) here again so i'm making a list of places that have good croissants right (laughs) but you know and then related to the croissant of course in my culture is the haitian pate right yeah of a good haitian pate it's an often Mm -hmm. for those you don't know it's an appetizer often you'll find at a party or an event and it also has the multi-layered sort of crusty pastry and inside Mm -hmm. there is usually um, meat or fish or, you know, that's been ground up and cooked inside of it. Mm-hmm. Chicken. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's so good. And also, so good. it's not done well. There are people who complain about the pat- like good pates versus bad pates, you know? You know Haitians uh, will not will yes. not let you get away with a bad pat- pate. They'll be like, my mother in particular, because she lives in Miami where there are many bakeries, right? She will tell you not which bakeries not to go to. No, they don't do good pate there. You don't, do not bring her a pate from there and don't go to that one. So she has her approved list. That's hilarious. She'll be asking you like, ¿Qué yeah, like exactly. where did you buy this pate? And if That's you tell exactly her, she'll be like, mm, I don't need it. <laughs> Oh, the derogatory. No shame, no shame. They be like, I'm good. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And then I'm like, I used to not be as picky as her, but now I just follow her lead. I'm like, and it is about the the leaves. They call the leaves the layers of the pastry, right? Whether it's Mm -hmm. cooked all the way through and you get the the different, yeah, it's a, yeah. So pates and croissants. Yes. (laughs) Oh, I love it. I love it. Thank you so much. It has been such a pleasure having you. It's such a pleasure seeing you again. Um, I'm so glad that you were able to do this. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Hey, did you enjoy that episode? If so, please leave a review. It would mean the world, but only if it's a good one and you really did enjoy it. In which case, it would be awesome if you help support my work over at patreon.com backslash Cedrola Maruska. And finally, before you go, don't forget diversitydish.com. I'd love to work with you. See you soon.